0: Good evening and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. My co-host tonight, Emmy-nominated legal and political analyst Dean Johnson. In recent months, we ran a series of programs on criminal justice reform. Earlier programs featured the election of various law enforcement officials in the Bay Area and the related politics and the mood of the electorate implications for elections for criminal justice reform statewide we discuss personalities and policies regarding the makeup and enforcement of substantive law less so the procedural nuances of the criminal justice system tonight in particular we look at some of the fundamentals of criminal prosecution interrogation and confession
1: dean good evening everyone You know, Jeff, the first piece of advice that defense attorneys give to their clients is don't talk to the cops. There's a reason for that. Take, for example, the case of Edgar Garrett of Goshen, Indiana. His daughter disappeared. The police, for some reason, concluded that Mr. Garrett had bludgeoned his daughter to death and dumped her body in a nearby river. After hours of interrogation, Mr. Garrett signed a written confession giving a detailed account of the murder that exactly mirrored the police's theory of the case. The prosecution sought the death penalty. When Mr. Garrett's daughter's body was found, she'd been stabbed, not bludgeoned. And DNA evidence ultimately eliminated Mr. Garrett as her killer. Mr. Garrett was acquitted, thankfully. But it's reported that to this day, Mr. Garrett still believes that he killed his daughter, even though he's been confronted with the evidence to the contrary. So our question tonight, how does this happen? What are the methods that police use to force people to confess to crimes that they didn't commit? And more importantly, if police are searching for the truth as they're supposed to be, why do they use tactics that they know that they will lead to, that will lead to false confessions? Jeffrey. As always,
0: we want to hear from you as you're our most important guest. We want you to be part of this conversation. So give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll free at 866-798-8255. That's 866 866-798- 798 8255. But bear in mind that just as a physician won't diagnose your family member based on a phone call, our attorney guests can't pres- can't provide you precise legal advice as they lack all of the facts relating to a specific case. However, we're happy to pass along the legal principles to assist you in your decision making. And while their guidance mightn't be the positions of their employers or their clients, our attorney guests are here to help. Dean?
1: And tonight we have an outstanding pair of guests, each of whom approaches this issue from his own unique and highly informed perspective. Jeffrey, who's our first guest?
0: Author of such legal articles as that three o'clock phone call and yikes, they're searching your client's computer. San Francisco attorney David Begeleisen has represented persons accused of crimes since 1975 in New York and in California since 1976.
1: Dean? And Professor Richard Leo is the Hamill Family Professor of Law and Psychology at the University of San Francisco. He is also a fellow of the Institute for Legal Research at the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. Dr. Leo is one of the leading experts on police interrogation practices, the impact of Miranda, psychological coercion, False Confessions, and the Wrongful Conviction of the Innocent. Dr. Leo has authored more than 100 articles in leading scientific and legal journals, as well as several books. Most recently, he's he's a co-author with um, George C. Thomas III of Confessions of Guilt, From Torture to Miranda and Beyond, which is published by Oxford University Press.
0: So to both of our guests, let me welcome you to your legal rights. Thank you very much, Jeffrey.
1: Thank you. And as our listeners know, I always like to open the the discussions with a question that exposes the elephant in the room. Um, And I'll ask this to both our panelists. You know, we often hear people say uh, when we're talking to jurors and such um, that nobody would confess to something they didn't do. Um, I take it that your answer would be, that's not quite true. Right, Professor? Professor?
2: Yes. Well, in, in the last 30 years, with the advent of DNA technology, we've documented hundreds of cases of proven false confession. And so the question is no longer whether somebody would falsely confess during a police interrogation, however counterintuitive and nonsensical that might sound to the viewers or the listeners, rather. The question is why and how often does it happen and what can we do about it? Well, that's kind of my question. Why does this happen? You know, we're always told by the
1: police um, and by prosecutors that they're searching for the truth. How is it that the police get people to confess to something they didn't do? And more importantly, how did this come about? I mean, why do police use methods that they know are going to lead to false confessions?
3: I can respond to that, Dean. from the point of view of the police behavior they 're not so much interested in finding out what the truth is, but closing cases and they start out with what their own biases are and then go forward with the interrogation based on what they either would like to hear or what they think happened. Um, sometimes we call that confirmation bias um, and what that often hap- what often happens is that entirely misleading or inaccurate information comes out of that Um, it does a lot of harm because not only does it uh, end up having an innocent person face uh, criminal charges but it also distracts the authorities from the true person who has committed the crime but as i understand it in most cases that i've seen
0: it's not so much that the police are looking to solve it irrespective of finding the right person they actually start with the bias of actually believing they have the right person and in general, there's very seldom a look backward to second-guess what's been done or to verify it. Rather, they just want to corroborate with whatever evidence they can gather, particularly a confession.
3: Yes, Is in that, fact, that's well-documented, uh, and that's what we call confirmation bias, bias to confirm what they already believe. Richard, um, that, that begs the question,
0: David and I can theorize as to what's driving it, but ultimately— What's been done to test on it? Has has there been any experimentation to prove this?
2: Well, there are experiments uh, where police interrogation techniques are applied in the laboratory. But for ethical reasons, we can't replicate uh, exactly interrogations in, in police stations, especially serious interrogations, interrogations of serious crimes. But I think the, the strongest proof is, is the documented cases. The National Registry of Exonerations has over 3,200 documented exonerations going back to 1989. Almost 400 of those are false confessions. They're DNA and non DNA exonerations. The Innocence Project has 375 DNA exonerations. Uh, we have hundreds of cases documented in the literature. Um, so there's no dispute anymore that they happen, but I I do want to say one thing, the the way I think about it, which I think builds, I'll be very brief um, on perhaps what you and David were saying, which is that there's three mistakes that police make. The first is they misclassify an innocent suspect as guilty, and I think that's um, in part, what, what David and you are getting at with confirmation bias. Police are trained to be human lie detectors, to infer whether somebody is telling the truth or lying based on their body language and demeanor, despite the fact that, that lots of psychological science shows we are not good human lie detectors. We get it right barely better than chance. A lot of police, and David can probably speak to this um, <clears throat> better than me, but a lot of police have this sense of They have this superior intuition, the sixth sense. They know the person who did it. David began by talking about the biases. And so they fasten on a suspect, and they try to build the case around the suspect, and they make a mistaken or a cynical judgment uh, and classify the person who is innocent as guilty, then subjecting them to the interrogation techniques, which we can talk more about that Jeff mentioned. And once they get the confession from the innocent person— feeding them details or maybe feeding them details along the way so that the person spits back those uh, details and the confession looks truthful and is used against them and often leads to a wrongful conviction. So three errors, what we call misclassification error, why did the innocent person get um, put in the interrogation room and treated as if they were guilty, coercion error, how was it and why did they falsely confess since they were innocent? And contamination error. Why did that confession appear so detailed and have motives and emotionality and inside knowledge, um, apologies, errors that were fixed that make it look like a true confession, even though it was a false confession? And so, professor, answer the answer. Answer your own question.
1: I mean, take us inside the interrogation room. How do you get somebody to do that? to provide a detailed confession um, with apologies and so on to something that they didn't do. I mean, we're not talking about the rubber hose of beating a confession out of somebody. We're talking about something much more subtle, correct?
3: It's not subtle. Go ahead, Richard.
2: <laughs> oh, it's, it's okay, David. You can go if you'd like. Um, well, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Uh, police interrogation is based on a presumption of guilt. Police are trained, only interrogate somebody whom you've concluded in your mind is guilty. And so when the police are interrogating somebody, their goal is not to evaluate whether the person's telling the truth or lying or evaluate their alibi. Their goal is to break down their denials and get a confession um, to to get the person prosecuted. And so we just have to talk about some basic techniques of interrogation. They accuse a suspect of, of lying And every time the suspect denies, they accuse the suspect of lying. Um, They accuse the suspect of committing the crime. They challenge and attack the suspect's denials. It's illogical or implausible um, or contradicted by the evidence. And as all of us know, but maybe the listeners don't, police in America are allowed to lie. They're allowed to make it up. They're allowed to say, I've got your DNA, your fingerprints. We've got you on videotape or surveillance camera. That really messes with a lot of people's minds, particularly people who have been brought up to and never had any reason not to trust the police, and and come to doubt themselves, like Edgar Garrett did, for example, in Jeff's uh, or Dean's opening description of that case from the late '90s in Indiana. Um, and police are trained to pounce in interrogation, to move closer, to raise their voices to pounce on any weakness, to break down those denials, and then to induce the suspect to think that the only way out, the only way to end this, the only way to get a better deal or avoid a harsher outcome is to stop denying and start admitting. And they often conjure up scenarios where if the person admits they're minimizing their blameworthiness or they lead the person to believe they're not going to be punished or nothing significant will happen or they'll be able to go home right now, But if they continue to deny, they'll be seen in the worst possible light, and they won't be able to end the interrogation or go home or not be seen as blameworthy. You and I had a case together some years ago
0: where a polygrapher came in, used a polygraph as a prop, and told the person he believed was guilty that he normally, the polygrapher, normally works on much, much more serious cases this is really nothing to worry about. We just need to get past this and tell us what really happened and began slipping him details. And he repeated it. I don't know if you remember that, but,
2: uh, I remember the case. I don't, I don't remember the, um, the, the, details, but it, you know, it turns out that the polygraph is involved in many, many false confessions. And to all the listeners, I would say is, um, the more legal experts here, um, know better about the legal end of this, but, Uh, Never, ever, ever agree to take a polygraph, especially in the context of an interrogation. First of all, it's junk science. It doesn't work. There's no validity or reliability to polygraphs. But secondly, they're always going to find you guilty, and then they're going to use it as a kind of psychological rubber hose to browbeat you into thinking that it read your mind and uh, it determined you were lying. You're guilty, so stop denying the, the gig is up. We're past that. The only reason is why you did it, why you're why you're off the charts, not whether you did it. Very powerful false evidence technique, because if the polygraph cannot tell whether you're lying or telling the truth, every time you're told in an interrogation that you failed the polygraph, the cop is lying.
1: So a couple of questions occur to me. If you're on the receiving end, if you're a suspect, and let's say you didn't do it, how do you deal with that? How do you work your way out of those dilemmas of, oh, if I confess, I think I might get to go home, but if I don't, then I'm going to jail. So either way, I'm stuck.
2: What do you do? Well, I think David's going to talk about never never speaking. Now, always invoke your Miranda rights, but you have to invoke them in a particular way. I want a lawyer. Otherwise, the words won't matter. But I I guess, I'm gonna um, let David speak in just a moment, but there's an asymmetry of power in the interrogation room, and the suspect, if they're innocent, of course, is acting in good faith, but the interrogator is not. The interrogator has an ulterior motive. It's to get the confession, Oftentimes they say, we just want to get the truth. But when they're told the truth repeatedly in
3: these false confession cases, they keep accusing the suspect of lying. David? Well, Richard, I'd like to begin by talking about what it's like when they march the guy into the police station. And they walk him first through one door, slam. Then another door, slam louder. Then they walk him through a couple of empty jail cells or maybe there's somebody in the jail cell. Then they walk him into this windowless Uh, interrogation room. Um, It smells like urine from the last guy who was there, or it smells like burnt old coffee. The lights are flickering. It's fluorescent lights. They put the guy down in a chair in the corner, and the two cops sit between him and the door. And they say to him, all right, we just want you to tell us the truth. And then they start to lean in on him. It's like an old Humphrey Bogart movie from the 1940s, where The cop with the jowls and the rings under his eyes um, starts to give the uh, accused the third degree. And if you think this doesn't happen, you're wrong. If you had a chance to watch the videotapes of these things, your hair would stand on end, and you'd say, this really happens. And they do. Uh, For example, they will say, we know you did it. The guy in the cell next door whom we arrested at the same time has already fingered you. You might as well tell us. Or they might say to him, either you or the other guy is going to confess first, and the one who de- confesses first is going to help us, and we're going to go easy on you. But if you, if the other guy confesses first, you're going to end up getting up, uh, punished twice on this. They'll say that. Or they'll say, if you tell us the truth, we'll tell the DA, and we'll tell him to be lenient on you. Um, and they use all of these techniques. They'll accuse the prisoner of lying they'll tell the prisoner well if it wasn't really that serious then we could tell the da to go easy we can help you we're here to help you um but if you don't cooperate with us then we're going to really let you have it they go through all of these techniques and some people are much more susceptible to this than others and richard i think that's something that you ought to be talking about
2: well, um there you know there's there's the interrogation techniques, and then there's the uh, individual personality and susceptibility. So there are three broad groups of individuals, types of individuals who are more suggestible, more gullible, more easily broken and made to confess, juveniles, people under the age of eighteen, particularly under the age of fifteen. But there's been a lot of um, well, I should say the reason they are is because of the brain development and and what clinical psychologists or researchers call psychosocial immaturity. Everybody who's had a teenager, has a teenager knows. They're impulsive, they're they're um, they don't make the wisest decisions and and they're they're easily led and manipulated under certain circumstances by authority figures. So juveniles um, are more vulnerable or adolescents But the brain continues to develop into the mid-20s, and so more recent neurological research in the last couple decades would suggest that, that even people in their late teens and early 20s would be more vulnerable, and we see a disproportionately high number of juveniles and young people in the false confession, documented, proven false confession cases. Second, people with intellectual disabilities, people with lower IQs, what are referred to as cognitive or intellectual deficits, people who are intellectually slow and tend to rely on others especially authority figures um, to get through the day Uh, people who who have lower iqs uh, or in special education programs are always looking to authority figures for how to behave and they often don't understand what's being told and so they're more easy to lead and manipulate into falsely confessing as well and then finally some people with with mental illnesses Um, are also uh, represented beyond their numbers in the population and more easy to manipulate into making or agreeing to a false confession. But there's one point that I have to make, which is that even though these three groups are disproportionately represented, more than 50% of the known false confessions, the proven false confessions, are still from mentally normal adults. So while people from those groups are at greater risk I don't want to leave the impression for the listeners that most false confessions are from weak individuals, whether it's adolescents, people with intellectual disabilities, or people with certain mental illnesses.
3: Richard, would that include some people who uh, tend, to be, uh, tend to yield to authority and be uh, very, very... Uh, compliant? Res- compliant, yes. Um, uh, or those who are eager to please those in authority? Well,
2: I think you nailed it, David. Yes. Yeah, so so um, the qualities that psychologists refer to as suggestibility and compliance capture what you're saying, that somebody who is suggest- suggestible yields to suggestion and somebody who is compliant um, tends to acquiesce or agree. And there are people in the population who are highly suggestible and highly compliant, even though they are not intellectually disabled or young or mentally ill. And so so th- so people with those personality traits tend to be um, more vulnerable to making or agreeing to a false confession as well.
0: You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. Joining me as tonight's co-host is Dean Johnson. Tonight, we're discussing Criminal investigation, interrogation, and a particular false confessions. My guests are Dr. Richard Leo, the Hamill Family Professor of Law and Psychology at the University of San Francisco School of Law and an expert in police interrogations and confessions. Also joining us is San Francisco attorney David Begleisen, who has defended criminal cases since 1975. If you have questions for my guest, our phone number is 415 841 4134. Again, If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. You can call regarding any question on tonight's topic if you want to stray into other aspects of the criminal justice system, but you don't have to join at the exact point we may be in our conversation Richard, one of the things that you just said struck me and one of them had to do with suggestibility and the other had to do with someone who's more likely to be compliant. And that begs the question, how often do people actually believe that they've done something wrong in order, in, in order to uh, make that confession as opposed to someone who's just going along and telling them what they think they need to say?
2: the uh most of the confessions most of the false confessions are of what we call the compliant type the person is broken to the point where they um fault knowingly falsely confess they don't believe they're guilty but they're giving the detective or interrogator an account that the interrogator wants to hear or will accept just to put an end to the coercion the pressure the stress of the situation. And most of these interrogations that lead to false confessions go on for hours and hours. There are some that are the product of short interrogations, but they're usually the product of longer interrogations. The second type of false confession that I think you're, you're referring to here is different from the person who's knowingly lying. The person like Dean suggested in the intro, Edgar Garrett, who comes to believe That they committed a crime despite having no memory of doing that. And that's far rarer. I don't know what the percentages are. I would estimate maybe one to five percent of the proven false confessions are of the second type, where the person comes to believe they committed the crime despite not knowing, despite having no memory of it. Um, Now, most people who are who come to doubt their memory in the interrogation defer to the judgment of the interrogator, think that they could have done, uh, committed a crime outside of conscious memory. We can talk about how that happens, very counterintuitive. But most of those people, once they're taken out of the interrogation environment, they, they realize, removed from the pressure of it, that they didn't commit this crime, that they were hoodwinked by the detective, that they came to doubt themselves and think they could have had a, uh, an actual memory of something they, they don't remember But there are a few people for whom the memories can persist over longer periods of time. Let me
0: turn it over. We have a couple minutes before our uh, station ID. I'd like to take a call from Ella from San Francisco. You're on your legal rights.
4: Hi. I was wondering, um, in the cases where these types of techniques are used by undercover uh, law enforcement, uh, and it's it, no one is you, you're not formally in char- charged with anything. Who can you go to for help um, or for for advice?
3: Well, um, the first thing you have to remember is that you have a right to, a, to remain silent. You have the right to refrain from talking. And if they start to interrogate you, you say, "I'm taking the fifth. I want to talk to my lawyer now." That's simple. There's a complicated way to say it, but you say, I'm taking the fifth. I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to my lawyer now. They're legally obligated to stop talking to you. If they keep going after that, they're violating the law, and whatever you say after that can be excluded from court, provided that you can prove it. That's that's the beginning on it. The other thing is just shut up. Don't say anything. They can't get any words out of you if you keep your mouth shut. So those are the two things that you need to do.
4: But if they're undercover, then they're not telling you they're law enforcement. They're pretending they're just a a random stranger. And then you figure you start to figure it out after you've already answered a lot of questions.
3: Well, obviously what you don't say is sometimes much more important than what you do say. So uh, um, you want to be very, very careful about that. Go see your lawyer, and your lawyer will take care of that for you.
4: What lawyer will help you if you have not been charged with anything?
3: Uh, There are lots of lawyers available. Uh, One of the very good ways to find a lawyer in San Francisco is to call the Lawyer Referral Service of the Bar Association of San Francisco. The Bar
4: Association told me it was beyond their scope and nobody wants to go up against the cops. What? That's what they said. I wrote down the man's name. I have the date that he said it. That's what the Bar Association said. It's beyond their scope. And their lawyers don't want to go up against the police.
0: If you spoke to somebody who practices strictly criminal defense, you might draw an answer like that if it's somebody who doesn't necessarily want to raise something when there's no case pending.
4: No, but it was their they're... answering service. It was the people who, are, who manned the phones who said this. They said they don't have lawyers who want to go up against the police. It was shocking. It was appalling. I have the man's name in my notes.
0: Uh, I, I can tell you there are people who look into that. San Francisco in particular has a uh, has always had a pretty forceful police commission that oversees it. Oh, civilian oversight, there are attorneys in the city that practice civil rights law. In addition to those that defend against criminal accusations, there are places to go. Do you I would...
4: know any specific referrals? Because I have tried for a very long time.
0: If you call the Lawyer Referral Service and tell them there's no criminal case pending, you want to talk to somebody about civil rights, you may probably get routed to a different lawyer than you would if you talk about criminal cases, even when there's none pending. All right. Their number is, which you'll hear again in a moment on the air, but their number is 415-989-1616. And we're going to be giving that out in about a minute.
4: All right. Thank
0: you. Thank you for joining us on Your Legal Rights. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. And we'll be back right after this.
5: Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County... The Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.
0: And you're listening to Your Legal Rights. We're talking with Professor David Leo, Criminal Defense Attorney David and We're talking about false confessions. And... One of the things that was alluded to in the last call was what that caller perceived as perhaps a violation of her Miranda rights. But they don't really apply when you're not in custody. Um, David, do you want to talk a little bit about that? that? We all know that if you're arrested, they have to tell you about these rights. But they exist anyway, don't they?
3: Yes, they do. Well, first of all, the question is, what does it mean to be arrested? And the law says arrested means your freedom to come and go is limited. Now, that can happen in lots of different ways. I gave you the example of the interrogation room where you're pushed into the corner and the two cops are sitting between you and the door with guns on their hips. Even if they say you're free to come and go as you wish, you know darn well that you can't. Um, There are lots of other situations like that. that You're driving down the street, the cop lights you up with the wigwag lights, um, he walks over to the window of your car, and at that point, you say, officer, am I free to leave? And he says, you need to answer some questions. You're not free to leave under those circumstances. There are other circumstances, and that is um, uh, if, uh, uh, if your freedom to come and go is restricted, the atmosphere of the place that you're in, um, uh, how they go about the interrogation and things like that, all have to do with whether you are in custody or not. Um, Of course, the same thing applies, though, and that is be careful, keep your mouth shut, don't talk to the police. Uh, They may tell you that you have to talk right now, otherwise it's going to get much worse. Wrong. There may be a time that it'll be much better to talk about it, but for the time being, wait until you talk to your lawyer.
0: Dean, what what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, you know, I think the caller raises um, some very interesting issues, and they're issues that we face every day. For example, um, we've all had the client who comes in with a big smile on his face and says, you know, I've been charged with such and such a crime, but this case is going to be dismissed because the cops didn't read me my rights. But that's not right, is it?
3: No. uh, In fact, the police can, and the district attorney can still use that statement later on if the accused decides to take the witness stand and says something that's in contradiction to what he said to the police. Then the district attorney uses that not to prove the crime against him, but to impeach him to show that he's lying. Well, you may say, I don't understand the difference between those two things. You would be right. But the courts make a distinction and they allow that stuff in. So
1: professor leo i miranda was was the great confessions decision and it was supposed to uh, fix all of these problems uh, that we've been talking about in fact there is a story that when earl warren was preparing the miranda decision he had the supreme court librarian go get the book that police actually read to learn how to interrogate and get a confession out of somebody but Miranda didn't really solve the problem, did
2: it? Well, yeah, you're right that um, uh, seven pages of the opinion are actually going over the interrogation training manuals and their techniques. And that became the empirical basis for the opinion. But Miranda didn't really solve anything, in my opinion. Um, But Miranda wasn't designed to solve. I, I guess we need to be more precise there was a problem with physically and psychologically coercive interrogation. Miranda didn't solve that problem. It didn't solve the problem of false confessions. What Miranda did was essentially guarantee at the time, um, if properly applied, it's been since gutted largely by su- successive Supreme Courts, that the suspect needed to give informed consent before participating in the interrogation. and that is why after the litany of rights, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you, you have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be appointed free of charge. They're supposed to say, do you understand these rights? And having these rights in mind, do you wish to talk to me? Now, they no longer do that all the time. And the rights are often, in my experience, at least just read to a suspect And then they launched into the interrogation. The courts have said this is an implicit waiver. So the the rights have been watered down. But it's important to remember that Miranda was not designed to solve the psychological coercion problem of bad techniques. It was not designed to solve the false confession problem. It was designed to guarantee informed consent after knowing about one's right to counsel and privilege against self-incrimination. And it's subsequently been watered down to the point where it's barely recognizable in its original form. In fact, some scholars have said there's two Mirandas, the original Miranda that Earl Warren wrote that Dean mentioned, and then the the, the Miranda that we now have 50 years later after Supreme Court case law.
0: Let me turn it to Ken in San Francisco. You're on your legal rights.
6: Yeah, hi. <clears throat> I was hoping, uh, you good people could give some specific examples. Um, when I first started thinking about this, there was the Central Park, uh, jogger case. It was a horrific, uh, murder, and four young men confessed to this horrible crime and only to be found innocent, and the confessions were false. <clears throat> it kind of makes one wonder, my goodness, how could you? How could anyone confess to such a heinous crime that they didn't do? And then I had another uh, just quick comment. Uh, If you could give some facts in my best friend's case, he confessed to having drugs in Berkeley, mostly because, one, he's a little guy and he was afraid of going to jail. So just the thought of being taken to jail was enough to get him to say anything. And then also he mentioned, It was 6.30 in the evening. I was worried about getting the last bus back to San Francisco because I didn't want to spend the money. I was just a lowly student. So there are a number of reasons, you know, that people would confess just out of inconvenience, but definitely, you know, uh, especially in, you know, uh, non, uh, I would say, I don't know how you say, hardened types, don't want to go to jail at all who's ever been there. But that Central Park Jogger case really uh, shocked me into looking further into this. Thanks for the topic.
0: Thank you for joining us. Uh, Ken brings up a good point. There's myriad examples of these things, uh, even locally, um, right up through and including local homicides where people have been coerced into confessing
3: uh, with the belief that when they get that behind them, they could go home. Richard, you had the Norfolk 5 case, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe that would be good for you to describe that to the audience.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to say in response to the caller first, and then I'll talk about the Norfolk 4 case, that it sounds to me like the police led the, 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 the caller's friend to believe that he would be able to go home if he gave them an account. It may not just be that it was inconvenience. Maybe there was some technique and persuasion because that's what police do. They minimize the suspect's blameworthiness. They downplay the seriousness of the crime to get an admission. The Norfolk 4 case is an interesting case because uh, four sailors were interrogated uh, months apart over long periods of time about the rape and murder of a different sailor's wife and each of them confessed um, and, and when the first one confessed they thought the DNA would prove his guilt and it didn't, and then the second one was interrogated, and the DNA not only didn't prove that person's guilt, but that person had not been mentioned in the first person's confession. Then they went to suspect number three, and that person confessed the DNA didn't match him. He wasn't in the confession of suspect one and two, and then finally suspect four had also, after interrogation, lengthy, psychologically coercive interrogation confessed. And so all of these confessions... Were proven false in real time by DNA testing shortly after the confessions, unlike the Central Park Jogger case where the DNA exonerated the five boys many years later. Um, and what these cases show is that, as counterintuitive as it is that just one person would falsely confess, you can get more than one false confession. I worked on a case called the Beatrice Six case, multiple false confessions in Nebraska. Many of these false confession cases involve multiple false confessions because the police have worn down the suspects. Central Park Joggers, um, five defendants at the time, eventually they were plaintiffs in a civil suit, were interrogated and detained and interrogated for between 14 and 30 hours. Very aggressively, they report slapping and threats and lies, which of course were denied by the police. But then the question is, many years later, We know they're absolutely innocent. We know who did it. Um, The DNA showed us who did it. Same in the Norfolk 4 case. How could you not believe their accounts? What explains why they would have falsely confessed? Five in the Central Park Jogger case, four in the Norfolk 4 case, because the police account is we just told them to tell the truth. We just accused them. We told them we had evidence. They told the truth. That's not the way it works, at least in those cases and the cases leading to false confession, but I think in most cases.
0: We talked a little bit about Miranda and whether the Miranda decision was as prophylactic as it might have originally been intended. It mentioned some of these techniques and actually a source for some of these techniques that's matriculated through every law enforcement agency in the country. Uh, And that, of course, is the Reed technique. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those techniques?
2: The, the Reed uh, technique uh, is named after the Reed and Associates training firm. They published one of the first interrogation training manuals in the 1940s. They've updated it ever since, and this book has become the Bible of American police interrogation. And they've trained hundreds of thousands of interrogators. And there are a lot of kind of copycats and derivatives and offshoots, other training firms that basically train in the Reed method. Um, The Reed method is guilt presumptive. It teaches police to become human lie detectors and if they think somebody is guilty to presume their guilt, aggressively interrogate them by accusing them, attacking their denials and suggesting reasons why they committed the crime that downplay the seriousness and appeal to the suspect's sense of not being in as deep as he or she might otherwise think. Um, The... So the, the the Reed method is the primary method of interrogation. There's a lot to be said about it, but I don't want to give a college-type lecture here. Um, that's, that's distilled to its essence, that they teach police to be human lie detectors. It's very aggressive, very accusatory, uh, and they persuade and manipulate suspects with the techniques we've been discussing. Lies, scenarios, implied promises, minimization. Sometimes, even implied threats in their scenarios, though the Reed people are are very careful to deny that their techniques or assert that their techniques contain any promises or threats. let me
0: turn it to Peter in St. Petersburg. welcome to your legal rights
2: hi uh yeah,
7: fascinating conversation i'm glad you mentioned the making that that Norfolk case, which I never heard about and compared it to the central Park case and as a lay layperson, it's like, why would anyone false confess? That's what I say. Of course, when I'm sitting here in my living room, it's very easy to say, I would never do something like that. But, you know, you're making me aware of how police can wear people down of different psychological constitutions. But let me ask you a question. Do you refer to ever the Rashomon effect? Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: I think I know what you're talking about, where two people experience the same thing and they they interpret it completely differently. Is that what you're talking about? In their their case, they all have different
7: reasons for taking credit for the killing. One doesn't want to look like a coward. The Rashomon effect, it's it's sometimes referred to in, in theatrical reasons. There's an episode of All in the Family where they all have different interpretations of what happened. It's called the Rashomon effect.
2: Do you know what I'm talking about? I thought I knew what you were talking about. I thought it's it's where people just see the event very differently.
7: Yes, yes one person one person wants to say that he killed him and in fact, the person maybe fell back and accidentally stabbed himself on the sword. but that would make the the samurai look like a coward, so he pretends everyone has a different take. you know I mean it, <laughs> when you see the final scene it's all they, they, they're they each telling the truth but kind of augmenting it in a certain direction where each of them is a hero or not a coward the Rashomon effect
0: so that that suggests to me that sometimes those factors that are in internally coercive or that lead somebody to a confession may not be limited to the police themselves it may be the situation the larger situation that induces somebody to confess even if it's not at the hands of a rubber hose-wielding police officer. Is that...
7: uh... Yeah. Yeah, right. They may have to increase their status among the group or to not look like a coward or to look like a hero, like he was defending his girlfriend, but the the truth may have been the opposite. They all have their way of, like, warping the story in a certain direction. I don't know.
0: Interesting observation. Uh, Dr. Leo, have you seen some of that yourself?
2: Well, not so much, but uh, the uh, you know there there are criminologists who specialize in gangs, and sometimes you know certain people will take the rap for other people. Um, I, I guess you know what the caller's comment r- reminds me of, but maybe not what the caller was getting at is the need for full electronic recording of interrogations because. The disputes that you usually see are between a cop saying, "This is what happened in the interrogation room," so that's one account. I did, I only did X, Y, and Z, and then the suspect saying, "No, no, no! You said this, you said that, you threatened me, you, 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 told me this." And so, if you have a full electronic recording of the interrogation, you have an objective record that doesn't go to what the um, caller is mentioning is, is, is discussing as the Roshman effect, but maybe it's a different kind of. Rashomon effect when there's a dispute, Uh, although in the false confession cases it's pretty clear the cops are lying about what occurred. Okay.
3: Richard, I'd like to go back to the Reed method, and uh, I want to describe a part of it that I've observed, and it's what I would describe as a seesaw, a roller coaster, a sine wave effect. And by that I mean is the cops will start out by saying, well, if we describe this event in such and such a way, um, such as that you deliberately stabbed the guy, then you're going down for a long, 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 long time and their bail is going to be half a million dollars. But if it was an accident, then uh, it's going to be much, much lighter. Now, tell us what happened. Knowing that all the cops really want is to have the uh, um, guy place himself at the scene. So... Uh, that is that's what they'll do and they'll have this up and down up and down have you observed that yes and so that's what we
2: mean by minimization downplaying the significance so you know an accident it was not intentional and you didn't mean to do it just in self-defense it's not a big deal we can all get out of here if you'll just uh tell us what happened uh and and that's contrasted as as i'm sure you've seen many times david you know did you do this intentionally? Was it premeditated? Was a plan? Are you a serial murderer, serial rapist? People, are, you know, the system's not going to be kind to you. What do you think the judge is going to think if you don't tell the truth? And sometimes that tell the truth is code for confess to the interrogator's theory of what occurred. Remember, I said interrogation's guilt presumptive. So I think you nailed it, David. I think that's that's a very common technique, especially in the false confession cases. A lot of people think when they that that they're. You know they're, they're going to get out of the interrogation or it's not a big deal because they've been led to believe by the downplaying it was just an accident self-defense i would have done it that it, it's not a big deal to agree or admit to that crime
8: and dial your operator
1: you know in the in the closing minutes i think i'd like to change the focus so obviously we have a problem here uh as david said the police are incentivized to close the case no matter what What we want police to do is convict the guilty and free the innocent. So how do we fix this? Uh, Professor Leo, you've seen all the techniques. You've seen all the problems. What do we do to filter out the guilty from the innocent in in the interrogation room?
2: Well, I think police need better pre-interrogation investigation. Uh, I've, I've written about having a probable cause requirement for interrogation, uh, some bar that they have to have some evidentiary basis for uh, suspicion before subjecting somebody to an interrogation. Uh, In addition, at the back end, we could have reliability hearings that don't focus on Miranda rights or abstract notions of voluntariness, but where judges are empowered pre-trial to to, um, exclude confessions that appear to have high indices of unreliability uh, is to keep bad evidence out so if we have better front-end investigation better back-end screening we'd have fewer false confessions getting into the stream of evidence and then I think as David's comments have suggested um, better regulation of interrogation techniques so there are a number of states now that are considering bills banning police deception not allowing police to lie uh, particularly with juveniles and, and we know that in virtually all the false confessions, there have been lying. Uh, so the, the, And we might want to ban some other techniques, like the one David mentioned that's at the heart of the read method, implying that there will be leniency if you confess and implying a threat of harsher treatment or punishment if you don't. So those would be three ways to bring down, presumably, the false confession problem, the false confession rate from better front-end screening, better regulation of problematic interrogation techniques, reliability hearings pretrial, to get bad confession evidence out before it goes to a jury in the cases which aren't that many, you know, maybe 5 maybe 10% in some systems that actually go to trial. Do you want to add to that, David?
3: No, I'm in agreement with uh, Richard on that. I also want to mention that when we defense lawyers are confronted with these problems, The first line of defense is to present it to the judge who's hearing the case and ask the judge to exclude the case from evidence. And sometimes the defense lawyer will prevail on that. When that happens, many cases, the uh, DA looks at the case and says, I have to drop the case because I have no other evidence except the confession. In other cases, the matter is presented to the jury, and all of the factors that uh, Dr. Leo has brought up are presented to the jury to decide in either event these kinds of cases call upon every fiber of the lawyer's spirit, body, and talent in order to uh, defend the accused. They are very, very, very challenging cases.
0: let me interrupt we have a time we have one more call. we only have about a minute left. Uh, Michelle from Berkeley are on your legal rights
8: um i'm uh- I hope I can say this clearly. Um, This was reminding me of the case that was publicized by, I think the radio show was called Serial, Uh, the young Pakistani man who was convicted of killing his girlfriend, but he did not confess. Um, A friend of him, his, claimed that he had helped this young man hide the body. The young man has always, always Denied, and a lot of the in the work that was done by the journalists really strongly suggested that the pressure had been put on the witness to um, to to uh, to to conv- you know to convict uh, this young man, um, but that the witness himself might not have been telling the truth. I don't know if you guys paid much attention to this. It was in Baltimore.
2: Yeah, the Adnan Syed case.
8: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Has anyone ever discussed that case in those terms, that the pressure was on the witness? But he wasn't just a witness. I mean, he claimed he had helped to, to hide a body. So obviously, in that sense, if it was a false confession, it implicated someone else. So in that case... It could have been the kind of press you were talking about where um, they say, well, if you confess to this, you're not going to get in trouble. You just need to implicate somebody else.
0: That, that really goes to the prisoner's dilemma that David mentioned earlier. If you're the first one to confess, you're going to either get away or you're going to get a much lesser sentence than the person who doesn't.
8: Anyway, I was just sort of wondering whether anybody had thought about that case in those terms because I, it seems like they've taken this as far as it could go and this young man is still in prison. And it didn't sound like he was guilty from, you know, what we heard on the radio.
3: There was a case such as that in San Francisco. Uh, I'm going to be very careful not to mention the people's names, but there was a uh, young woman who was pressured to give testimony against the accused by the police. She was uh, in her mid-teens And it turned out that nothing that she said that had happened truly happened, but all of those words were put in her mouth by the cops. The case was later overturned, and the man who was eventually exonerated got a very, very large award against the city of San Francisco for the misconduct of the cops. In my view, the money never makes up for that kind of injustice.
0: I'm sorry, Michelle, I have to cut us off. We are out of time. But I want to thank you for joining us in your legal rights. And I did want to give each of my guests, we're down
3: to about 45 seconds, if you would like, uh, about 45 seconds. Uh, David? Jeffrey, it's a great honor to be with you. It's a great honor to be with you, Richard. It's a great honor to be with you, Dean. Um, And remember, when the police come to talk to you, say, I'm taking the fifth. I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to my lawyer.
2: Professor Leo, about a minute. Uh I'll just be very brief. Just a, a point with regard to Michelle's comment. The police sometimes will interrogate witnesses. Sometimes they'll interrogate victims. Sometimes they will interrogate people who are potential but not real suspects. So these techniques are used against a lot of people, sometimes improperly, especially in the case of witnesses. Uh, and in Adnan Syed's case, I think um, his post conviction counsel is looking into this. Um, I guess what I would just one comment is. We all have a breaking point. We might think we're invincible. Anybody can be made to falsely confess, falsely admit to something. Uh, We all need to be very cautious if we are being questioned or interrogated by police. And remember that they may not be looking for the
0: entirety of a confession or the accuracy of a confession. They may be looking for a detail buried in this four or five hours of interrogation or two days of interrogation. You just don't know.
2: And if you do what David says and says, I want a lawyer now, that doesn't make you guilty. You're still entitled to a formal presumption of innocence. The burden of proof is always on the prosecution. There is nothing wrong with asserting your rights under any circumstances where you're being interrogated, especially if you perceive you're not free to go.
0: You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. Our guest tonight have been Dr. Richard Leo. The Hamill Family Professor of Law and Psychology at the University of San Francisco School of Law, San Francisco attorney David Begeleisen. My thanks to my host, to my co-host tonight, Dean Johnson. Your legal rights returns next week with an updated look at cryptocurrency. Best of all, we will take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to our guests for joining us. It's been enlightening and frankly a little terrifying. And especially our thanks to all of you for listening in. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Be safe and have a good night.
5: KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.